Invested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia, and this is my co-host Morgan. Hello. Joining us from New York with a rather loud air conditioner, which is one of the very last times we're going to be doing this, because soon Morgan is moving to the UK exclusively so she can watch Assassin's Creed movie with me. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Where there will be no air conditioners in my room. Yeah, I mean, the sound interference is giving us a nice vintage tone. For what I believe is our first vintage episode, this week we're going to be talking about Singing in the Rain. Yes. The classic Hollywood movie, uh, which I saw for the first time last week and was just bowled over by. I can't get over it. I've been like singing the songs in my head all week. (laughs) (laughs) I keep thinking about it and getting like really emotional. I read quite a lot of fan fiction about it. It was great. What a film. It is literally perfect. It has no flaws. Yeah, so we decided sort of last minute to do this episode because Gab was so enthusiastic about it, and it seemed like a good opportunity to do something older, which we kind of been looking for an excuse to do for a while. So what were the circumstances of you watching this? Was it just on a whim, or was it a, a group activity? Or Well, or- a group of my friends, every few weeks, we go to my parents' house <laughs> and watch a movie on a big projector screen. And last year, we watched all six Star Wars movies in preparation for Star Wars over the course of the year. And this year, each of us picked a classic Hollywood movie. And whoever's turn it was this time chose the, the Singing in the Rain. So that is why. <laughs> wise. A wise yes. choice. Yes. Yeah. Have you have you ever seen one of these old musicals before? Yeah, I mean, I've seen a few, but I mean, it was probably a few years ago. And Singing in the Rain, is, it just like really affected me. Like it wasn't just like, oh, I quite enjoyed this film and then kind of forgot about it. I was just like, every part of this is a marvel and it's a wonderful bomb to my existence. Cause so many, <laughs> I watched so many bad movies this year, you know? And yeah. Not bad movies that I enjoyed, like bad movies where I was either like, this is actively crushing me creatively or films where I was just like a lot of money has been spent on something that's unnecessarily mediocre. (laughs) Yes. So it was really great to watch something that is just perfect. Yeah. They don't make them like they used to. (laughs) They make great movies in in different ways than they used to. But watching this, I really was sort of struck by how... It's so pure. Yeah. But it's not sanitized, which I found... I mean, we should, yeah, we can we can talk about that a bit more later, but, like, we should introduce the film first. But I really liked the fact that it was not kind of talking down to the viewer and being like, here's, like, a kind of bodlerized version of adulthood. It's just, like, an extremely pure, cheerful view of something that still has kind of cynical realism, but, like, in the silly, you know, nice musical land where everyone's happy. Well, you could show this to an eight-year-old. Yeah. And the eight-year-old would just be happy. And you could also, I mean, you can watch it as an adult and completely appreciate it which is a very rare thing to find in a film a film that's made by pixar yes (laughs) and even most pixar films i think i mean this is a movie for adults that also can be appreciated by children right but the pixar movies i think for the most part are movies made for adults that are masquerading as children's movies which is kind of a distinct thing and like i don't think that's a problem but it is kind of a it's a little bit of a cheat, right? Like, which is fine. But I think that it's really impressive when a movie like this manages to just, like, be appealing to basically everyone. Like, that's it's really pretty rare. Um, 
And obviously, like, as a little kid, you wouldn't get all the nuances, but you would basically get it. it. I think that's just really impressive. I watched this movie for the first time when I was, like, 16, I think. It's still the only one, I think, I think of the sort of, like, big old Hollywood musicals that I've seen. I'm trying to remember if there are... I've seen, obviously, a bunch of old movies, but I don't... Like, I've seen the only Gene Kelly movie I've ever seen, and I don't think there are any other sort of big musicals. I don't, I don't think I'd seen a Gene Kelly movie before. I kind of assumed yeah. that I had, but when I was watching this, I was like, I would definitely remember this yeah. beautiful face. Like, yeah. I, like, when I kind of think it when you're watching it, and I was kind of thinking about how he was the co-director, and I was just like, Gene Kelly made a film about how beautiful Gene Kelly is. He did, he did, and I respect that. Oh, before it, we go any further, we should probably just do like a quick recap slash description of the film. I'm sure that everyone has listened, knows Singing in the Rain. But on the off chance that you're like me and watched it for the first time without even knowing what decade it was set in or what it was about, <laughs> it's a film that was made in 1952 and it is set in the 1920s, 1927, which is just right at the end of when films were going from silent to talkies. And the main characters are uh, Gene Kelly's character, who is a really big movie star, like a silent movie star, his partner in crime, who grew up with him as like a vaudeville performer and then went to Hollywood and is now a composer. There's a kind of blonde bombshell movie star who's Gene Kelly's fake off-screen girlfriend and on-screen girlfriend in movies named Lena Lamont, who's absolutely hilarious. And then there's like a new young starlet who kind of comes to Hollywood and they decide that they're going to do, you know, a talkie and she ends up singing the voice for the Lena Lamont character because she can sing and this silent movie actress can't. And it's just a delightful, lovely, cheerful romance about them kind of navigating that series of problems. Can't sing is like a generous way of putting the fact like her voice is comically yes. unlistenable. <laughs> she has like, she puts on a really amazing, awful like it, it, it's it's one of these things where it's like sort of it's a classic thing with like the silent movie actors, how like some of them were not suitable for talking films and like she's yeah. the pinnacle of that because she looks really beautiful and chic, and then as soon as you switch the sound on, it's like Hello Yes. <laughs> Um, amazing performance by uh, Jean Hagen, and she was yeah. for an Oscar for Best Supporting Actress. Yeah, only nomination the film got, I think. So I saw this movie at a friend of mine's house in high school, and uh, I used to go over to this friend's house a lot and watch movies in this like loft at her house where her mom had her like sewing room. And when I was in high school, I was really getting into film and like they had filmmaking classes in my high school. And so I was doing that and I really wanted to be a director. That was my big thing when I was like 16 and my friend wanted to do movie costumes. And so we wanted to have like a production company when we grew up, we had like a name picked out, like this was very serious, but she had grown up like watching old movies and I had not, like, my parents weren't really into it. Um, I think my father recommended like two classic films to me ever, those being Casablanca and The Sting, unless you extend classic to the 80s, in which case also like Bill Murray movies and Spinal Tap. So I was not really grounded in this tradition so much. And my friend was like, this is embarrassing. You've never seen a movie and you want to make movies. Come over to my house and I will show you films. The only ones I actually remember watching were like Singing in the Rain, The Scarlet Pimpernel, and like some Errol Flynn movie because she was in love with Errol Flynn. She was like, <laughs> like 16 years old. Like this is what she was watching. It was amazing. 
But um, it was great. Her older sister was, like, very cool, like, artsy person. She had a cat named Ingmar after Ingmar Bergman. Like, we were very impressed by her. I don't know that I ever actually met her, but I was very impressed by her. She was in college. And I remember watching Sigmund in the Rain and just being very confused by the dream ballet sequence. Like, that was my primary memory of this film, was, like, the basic plot and confusion at the dream ballet. But uh, clearly I got something from this educational experience from like going over to my friend's house and watching these movies because I do remember this one I don't remember most of the others like it obviously stuck with me but uh, I was watching it again and um like I I liked it a lot the first time but I didn't fully get it I don't think and we were also watching on her like mom's shitty little like attic television <laughs> um and I was watching on a much better tv this time and I was just like this movie is so good like, I was laughing out loud so much during it. And it was made in 1952. And, like, obviously a lot of those old comedies are still very funny. But, like, humor often does not translate that well from, like, culture to culture or from era to era. And it's still hilarious. Like, I was yeah. in stitches. And it's all round as well because they have the sidekick, Donald O'Connor. Yeah. It's just, like, this incredible physical comedian. Like, he just does amazing faces and slapstick. And it's really kind of vaudevillish, but it completely works now. And then yeah. it's like the sort of thing that you now only really see in like children's sitcoms, like a sort of like Malcolm in the Middle face, but like he's yeah. just got this elastic face and he does all this like extremely acrobatic dancing and physical comedy. Yeah. But you also have one-liners that are just brilliant. Like Lena Lamont's character has loads of one-liners and they've got silly little sight gags. Like when they first introduce sound equipment to the movies, they have to hide microphones um, like around the set and there's just this scene where someone keeps turning their head and you only see hear half of their dialogue and yeah. it's just hysterical. And I think it's also helped by... The fact that, like, all the way through the movie, you're just really happy. Yes. <laughs> it's just, and, like, the tagline for this film is, oh, what a glorious feeling. And I've never heard such an accurate tagline <laughs> in my life. Because, <laughs> like, even there's, like, there's, like, obviously dramatic tension, right? But I feel like it's just the perfect example of a film that doesn't really need to give you much of a threat for you to just enjoy it and for it to, like, run really well. Yes. And I think part of that is, like, you have this romance between um, Gene Kelly and Debbie Reynolds that is resolved quite early on in the movie, right? Like, they sort of meet, and it's a classic thing where, like, they both think the other one is terrible, and then, of course, they wind up falling in love. But typically, in plots like that, that's what happens at the end of the movie. And in this, it happens maybe a third of the way through. Like, they, they just decide, yeah, well, okay, fine. Like, we really yeah. like and it just leaves room for more great dance sequences. <laughs> the sort of opposition isn't between the two of them. The opposition becomes this other actress who is like ruining this movie with her terrible voice <laughs> and the fact the studio doesn't really know what to do about this because she is really popular but like is not going to be able to transition and so it winds up kind of being the two of them and then the other friend who like are just they're all seem to be like happily living in this triad of just like yeah the very... fanfic i read was all threesome fanfic yes <laughs> <laughs> um, against the outside world, which I think contributes to that sense of happiness and buoyancy. Like, it's not like there's a great deal of interpersonal angst. Like, obviously, they are frustrated with other people, but it's not as though the two friends fight at any point about anything. And once the sort of romantic tension is overcome, that never really pops up again in a significant way, which obviously in other movies works really well it's not like i'm opposed to drama but in this one it makes it just feel very pleasant and like you know they're they're going against the man 
like, we gotta get this fixed. Um, and the villain, if you will, it's not quite the right word, but is quite cartoonish and obviously, like, entertainingly awful, but you also don't get the sense that she's, like, an evil person. Like, she's kind of too dumb. Yeah. Well, she's simultaneously dumb, but she's also, like, professionally... She does, like, a really great double cross halfway through, and I was like, well done, girl, even though you're, like, rooting against her. It was, like, it was very well done. (laughs) Yes, yes. Although it was interesting, I did kind of find myself... The one thing I felt dated it a little bit, not that this sort of thing would never happen in a movie these days, Um, the film is not very generous to her. No. Ultimately, like, I, I won't say how exactly if some of you haven't seen this, but um, the sort of climax of the movie is quite cruel to her in a way that is satisfying on one level, but in another way is really kind of unpleasant. And it made me think about the other, like I haven't seen the other like Gene Kelly movies from this period, but I have seen some of the other like films about Hollywood that were made very contemporaneously with this. So I was thinking primarily about All About Eve and Sunset Boulevard, both of which are incredible films and very different from this in many ways. But the focus of those movies is largely on like aging actresses who are trying to deal with the movie business or in the case of Sunset Boulevard are just like not Not. dealing (laughs) and like Sunset Boulevard obviously she's I mean for those of you who haven't seen it it's also about like a sort of um like aging ex-silent film star who has been very much passed by by the world who can't really deal with this and is in this sort of state of delusion about everything and she's presented kind of as a caricature and in a monstrous way in certain ways but she's very much an object of sympathy i think like she's funny and sort of out of touch and nuts but you're i think you're supposed to feel bad for her like she's the it's clearly unfair what's happened and so and all about eve similarly like betty davis plays the sort of aging actress and is the protagonist of that movie and clearly you're supposed to be on her side and um in this movie that figure is positioned in such a way where, like, she's the bad guy, right? Which is fine, it works, but I just thought it was interesting, like, the way this was set up. It's sort of like the younger woman and the men are sort of like, we're gonna get rid of you, ha ha ha. Yeah. For like, I was too, but I was kind of like, oh. Yeah, like, when that happened at the end, I was sort of thinking about kind of contemporary films like obviously there aren't really films that have this kind of setup that are for adults anymore so there's not really something you can compare directly but i was kind of thinking about like to what extent modern films shame the bitch yes and it's it's movies aimed at teen girls but in many ways those are like worse than this yeah if there was one thing that i'd kind of change about this i'd be a bit kinder be a bit kinder to lena lamont who has known one life (laughs) right and um and also, like, there are a number of jokes that are kind of, like, she's convinced herself that um, she and Gene Kelly, whose character, whose name I've forgotten in the movie, um, are, like, she's convinced herself that they're an item because she's read all the sort of, like, gossip press about yeah, it. Which I found like, quite implausible, actually, because I was like, why would she believe that? Right. Because it's her um, whole job is being, like, <laughs> doing fake right. stuff. <laughs> um, but it's, like, they get a number of very funny gags out of it because yeah. she's oh my god, like, no, what, like, <laughs> please stop. Um, but at the Nothing same- between us, just air. <laughs> yes, one of the great lines in cinema. 
But at the same time, you're kind of like, this seems a, like A, a bit implausible, but also then B, if you do sort of buy into it and say, okay, this is what she is psychologically like going on in her head. And it's just a little bit sad, right? She's clearly like has convinced herself that this is true, and like this is her whole life, like revolving around this fiction. Like, I mean, not just that; like her whole life is bound up in all this studio press and this nonsense. Um, and then the movie makes a joke out of that, and of course, the, it's a comedy, and it's very light. And I loved it, so I'm sort of focusing on this negative thing but it was just interesting to me to see that as something that clearly was just like ah like at the time right and like i don't think anyone would have second guessed at all um all the, but but then like compared to other films that were being made that clearly were sort of thinking about that i mean sunset boulevard i saw recently and hadn't seen before and we were sort of talking um before we did this about the sort of like cynicism or or the way this film handles cynicism and realism about Hollywood. Um, and I thought it was again interesting to compare this movie to Sunset Boulevard, which is like the most real film I have ever seen about Hollywood. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's, that it's dark. Movie, it's so dark. Oh my god. I was watching that and like I also saw it in a theater and like that it's hilarious. Like everyone was laughing hysterically and like, you could just like, it's so applicable to how Hollywood works now. Like so little has changed. What I really was enjoying when I was watching Singing in the Rain, right. Is that the whole thing is kind of about the nuts and bolts of filmmaking. Like it's very, it's very kind of musical fantasy ish, but like, all the stuff they come into contact with is things like technical difficulties on the soundstage and like a film having really bad uh, kind of response from previous audiences and them having to completely re-edit and refilm half the film at the last moment, which like still happens now. Like it's happening with, you know, it happened with Mad Max, it happened with Suicide Squad, you know, it happens with big films now. And also the fact that like the main kind of interpersonal conflict is the fact that uh, Gene Kelly's character is in this fake relationship with Lena Lamont for the magazines. And it's treated like very matter-of-factly and it's like a fun joke that the audience is in on. And this film was made in 1952, about the 1920s, because the whole of Hollywood has always been using this same formula of sort of, you know, yeah. you know, visiting the actor's house and having a look at like their amazing decor and talking about their like relationship. And it's like, you know, it's all fake or, you know, it's staged or whatever. Um, and it just made me like really amused about how innocently matter-of-fact that was when that kind of stuff still happens now and there's lots of like weird sinister like conspiracy bullshit in Hollywood and like people are still very very happy to kind of like swallow the lie which I don't like I don't find troubling because it's kind of the point right like the point is that you you know it creates this sort of veneer for entertainment's sake but it was just fascinating to see that from such a kind of wholesome film. <laughs> well right and like the difference between this film and Sunset Boulevard right is that that movie is looking at the sort of fucked up aspects of Hollywood and obviously is making entertainment out of them and is making comedy out of them. And it's not like it's a documentary about what Hollywood is like, but is really mounting a critique of how fucked up the whole thing is. And singing in the rain definitely is poking fun at elements of this, like the sort of gossip rag thing of the fake relationships and the actresses, acting impossible on set and like all of this stuff but the way it's done is sort of like yeah well this is how it is and you just gotta deal with it um and i 
feel like it simultaneously is engaging with that in a way that feels relatively honest, but also making it feel good to consume, right? Yeah. Like, you don't walk out of there being like, man, Hollywood's bad, right? <laughs> like, it no. doesn't, you know? I think that's why, like, when I was watching it, and also, like, several of my friends had the same thought, which was just thinking of Hail Caesar, which yeah. came out this year and was great, but it's like the same sort of tone where obviously Hail Caesar is like a bit more biting, but it's generally just sort of like it's a cheering film, even though it's got kind of a different type of humor than Singing in the Rain. And it's all about like Hollywood garbage and people acting terribly and like to a more extreme extent. But like you don't come out of it being like, well, Hollywood's the worst. I'm never watching a film again. Yeah, you've made that, that comparison to me the Morgan other day. was like, this is disgusting. I, they do not contain the same narrative themes. <laughs> and I was really confused, and I still don't really get it, but I respect your opinion. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, I was there both about Hollywood, but I don't really... Like, The Hail Caesar just feels like such a Coen Rose movie to me, to the nth degree. I mean, it's all about, like, theology. Did feel, like, not exactly pessimistic, but... I don't know. It, it I mean, felt they like... had communists. <laughs> so... Yes, it's true. There were there were a lot of communists in Hail Caesar, which I enjoyed a lot. On uh, the other hand, though, the artist. Yes, which is clearly is clearly like directly inspired by this movie um, in an obvious way, and I think it is like we were sort of listing off, um, you know, contemporary films that are about Hollywood and this sort of connection between those older movies and these movies and Hollywood is perpetually obsessed with itself. So it's going to keep making these films for as long as Hollywood exists. Yeah. I mean, the uh, year when Hugo like won a bunch of Oscars, I was just so annoyed because I was like, look, you've made a film that's okay. That's about filmmaking. And because everyone voting for these awards is a filmmaker, they're all like, it's great. And it's like, it's, I don't think Hugo won that many Oscars. I think it just got nominated. For just felt like it won some. <laughs> It felt like it won too many. <laughs> yeah, I did not like Hugo either. Many people did. I don't understand. Except that it was, again, playing into this, like, thing with Milius, who's was unbelievable, but I, who cares? But like, what could be more impressive than inventing filmmaking? And I'm like, I mean, I can buy into, like, that kind of thing for a lot of films, but I feel like once you elevate it to that point, we all need to chill a minute. Like, <laughs> right, and this is actually, like, we both like Birdman a lot. We went to see Birdman together, in fact. But um, the fact that that one so soon after the artist in Argo was just like, oh my gosh. Like, you're <laughs> like, just up yourselves. Right. Whereas, like, Singing in the Rain, the thing that I found, like, kind of cool thinking about it afterwards was the fact that, like, the main characters are sort of a lot less ambitious, really. Like, the kind of goal of the main characters is to have fun. And you can sort of imagine the main couple just washing up and maybe not making films after 10 years, but still being happy together. And like the composer guy just being a composer for the rest of his career or something like that. Right. Whereas well, like I, there's some of these films where it's like, you kind of feel like it's very career based. I almost think it's the opposite, right? Where they're very much working in this like old studio system of like, you're contracted to the studio for X number of years and they're going to put you on whatever movie they want and you just got to go do it. And yeah. like the, obviously, so like the fight that the romantic leads get in at the beginning of singing in the rain is that she's kind of like, well, silent film actors aren't really actors. And like the real actors are stage actors who deliver dialogue and he's 
very offended because he's a real actor and Ugh. um and then you know she's she they get over this um so clearly he takes him he takes himself seriously <laughs> this is clear from the movie um but you do get the sense that he's kind of a jobbing guy right yeah. and i think that that lines up with that um ethos from the time and Gene Kelly himself obviously was someone with massive artistic ambitions and he did direct this film and a number of other films in which he starred and took, you know, dancing very seriously and all this stuff. But I think if you look at something like Birdman, which again, I liked, but that sense of like, I am a great artist and I'm going to make my art to make people take me seriously and it is going to be in the theater. Like, that's not really, like, you know... Not that, like, people in the past didn't care about art, obviously, but, like, it was not the... It wasn't the same because the beginning of Hollywood, films weren't taken seriously. Yeah. It's art. No. So... I just I just really appreciated that they were kind of having fun. It didn't seem like a sort of life or death, like, artistic, creative thing. Yes. I wasn't stressed out about them eventually kind of having a failed career by 1960, because, like... You know, the kind of the flip side of this movie is like, obviously, I'm like, gotta go to Wikipedia and find out what happened to all of these people. And it's, you know, the Gene Kelly obviously was an icon, but his career sort of fizzled out towards the end. Debbie Reynolds is this Hollywood icon who now, you know, I, I think of her personally as Princess Leia's mom. But, yeah. <laughs> but like, and then, and then the guy who played the friend was starred in like about 50 movies, like with a donkey and did variety shows. But like, <laughs> I was really intrigued by the relationship between Gene Kelly and his co-director, because um, they were friends for like a really long time and his co-director was sort of his personal assistant for a while or something um, but they had like really loud like public falling outs career-wise and sort of feuded and like never really made up and there was a lot of public images of the co-director Stanley Dolan being seen as like oh he's the sidekick and it's kind of clear that he's the role of the sidekick in the movie but that's like depicting this much happier version of what it was actually like in real life and also, they were both married to the same women. I was going to say, didn't Gene <laughs> Kelly marry yeah. the woman that... Yeah. Yeah. I'm quoting Wikipedia here. In 1960, Kelly married his choreographic assistant, Gene Coyne, who had divorced Stanley Donan in 1949 after a brief marriage. So that strikes me as something that could perhaps have led to some conflict. Yeah. Yes. Yes. It's, sort of, it's like singing in the rain. It's just sort of like the cheery version. And of course, you know, you're like, oh, Gene Kelly, he's so nice. And it's like just acting like an asshole to Demi Reynolds, who was filming at 18 and her feet were bleeding and she'd never danced before. And Gene Kelly was just like a tyrant. <laughs> yes. And I believe re-recorded the like tapping sounds for her dance scenes because he did not think that they lived up like it was up to stuff. Oh my god, that's <laughs> just that's perfectionism. Yes. I think he did at least feel bad about it afterwards. He was said there's some quote where he was like, I'm surprised that she was willing to talk to me after we made that movie because like I was really mean to her. It's like, yeah. Sounds like it. <laughs> Although we were, like, looking him up last night, and he it was definitely, like, he was a character. I'm sure many of you are aware of all of this, but um, there was interesting stuff about him in the, the McCarthy stuff in the 50s, which, again, obviously is when this came out. Um, this is all on Wikipedia, but um, he, was, he was very, very liberal 
guy is a lifelong member of the Democratic Party. And sort of the most interesting thing to me, actually, was that he, like, left the Catholic Church once he sort of saw what was going on in the Spanish Civil War in the 30s. He was like, I'm out. Can't support this, which I find quite fascinating. Like, that's a pretty extreme step for someone to take. And also donated money to the provisional IRA in the 70s, which is like, okay, that's quite interesting. So I'm sure there are biographies out there of Gene Kelly that are pretty fascinating to read, but that's our little contribution on this podcast, all for Wikipedia, where you can find yeah, out Yeah, I feel like this is not giving a good image of me as a journalist. <laughs> I don't usually cite Wikipedia, but I feel like there's some instances in which Wikipedia is relatively reliable and Hollywood classic information is one of them. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, for this podcast, I yeah. think we, we can use that. That's fine. Um, but I do always feel like yeah, I would watch these old movies and invariably like go look at these people on Wikipedia and half the time it's weird shit like they gave money <laughs> to the IRA and the other half of the time it's like they had a mental breakdown in 1962. And well, then funny to ask, the sidekick actor who plays the composer uh, smoked four packs of cigarettes a day and he just like so there was that there's this whole dance routine which is like one of the most famous ones like the make him laugh dance routine where he's just leaping around he's like jumping up walls and stuff and apparently he was just like bedridden for a couple of days afterwards because once again four packs a day <laughs> yeah that's... he lived to the ripe old age of 78 <laughs> and he was an alcoholic and he got better that uh it's pretty good it's pretty yeah. good some people are genetically blessed. My uh, my great grandmother never went to a doctor and lived to be ninety eight years old. So these people in the past, sometimes it worked yeah. out. Maybe uh, she ate an apple a day, you know? Yeah. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah. Um, I do want to talk about the artist a little bit though, because I thought I kind of want to watch that again, having seen this. Because like when I that movie came out, obviously I'd seen Singing in the Rain, but it had been a while, and I, it was interesting to me to think about that movie because that obviously was a big hit at the time and won a bunch of Oscars, including Best Picture. But after that point, was like everyone decided they hated it, and that it was terrible, um, which I think is now continues to be prevailing wisdom about that film. Um, which I think is kind of interesting because I think it's fine. I really liked it at the time. I saw it at a pack screening and everyone laughed really hard. And I think certainly of like recent Oscar winners or like best picture winners is pretty good. It's better than Argo by a long way. So <laughs> I, are so many films. Yeah. And, um, the artist is definitely, I think, like of all these sort of new movies, the one that seems the most obviously influenced by this movie to me, like the plot of that film, for those of you who didn't see it, is that there's like a very, very famous silent film actor who winds up meeting this young nobody female actress, and then he sort of elevates her, she surpasses him, and it's a sort of classic um downfall and then rise again story of this guy and also there's a dog which always makes all films better although the dog tragically has now died in real life which i found out recently it's very sad the dog was a fixture on the oscar circuit that year <laughs> won the palm dog at Cannes, which is big. <laughs> um that's a real award by the way they give it out every year palm dog to the best dog in competition at can i'm not making this up classic film tradition <laughs> but uh 
I just find it really interesting when these movies have these weird afterlives. Um, and that's obviously a particularly like obvious example. Like it's literally set in the silent era. That movie, again, for those of you who haven't seen it, like there's no dialogue. It is they literally created a silent film it's in black and white, the whole thing. There's a lot of tap dancing. Um, although I think they both learned to tap dance in like six weeks. Like we're like didn't do anything else for six weeks. We're like dying. I mean that's that's also kind of like blew my mind like in singing in the rain the idea that like Debbie Reynolds couldn't dance before making this film oh and I'm like she, she she's quite great. good. <laughs> she's not as good as Gene Kelly. But, yeah, like, but Gene Kelly been doing it for twenty years. Right, <laughs> ever, so it's fine. And it was fascinating to me the idea that like I remember going and seeing that and like I've seen again like quite a few old movies but I'm not some kind of like huge expert in especially of silent films. And there's a way in which I think we just by having imbibed stuff in the culture are like, Oh yeah, I recognize that. Yeah. Like I, I get what's happening there and it feels very nostalgic and almost in a primal way, which I think is why that movie did so well. Um, and I kind of wish that people like, Obviously, people watch these old movies pretty often, especially something like Singing in the Rain, which is, like, a huge deal, like, the best movie musical ever, et cetera, et cetera. But I was thinking about the fact that, like, when I was a kid, my parents didn't show me this stuff, which is fine, like, it wasn't their thing. But watching this last night, I was like, okay, if someone had shown that to me when I was, like, 10, I would have been into it, right? <laughs> like, I would have been like, this is great. Like, I would have been really excited. Um... And obviously there are plenty of kids who would not have gotten it and wouldn't get it now. And that's fine. Um, but there is like, you do kind of just pick up stuff and we all do, but the original stuff is, is good. (laughs) It doesn't just have to be recreated for us. Right. In this weird nostalgia package, which can still be good. I like the artist a lot. Um, but also it's kind of easier to like figure out which films are the good ones from like, 1950 because we've had 60 years for them to sort of shake out the bad ones right now it's quite hard for people to agree what was the best film of 2014 because everyone just remembers every single film only the good ones generally get remembered you know once you've got to that length of time away people are just like well you got to watch the sound of music or whatever right and like people complain a lot about the idea of the canon right and there are valid reasons for that because you know men and white people whatever and i mean they are valid complaints like i agree but also part of the reason that things get in the canon is because they're really good. Like, it's, you know, there's this sort of a two sides of this coin. Um, and this sort of, like, list of, you know, best American films the AFI does has some problems. But Singing in the Rain is, like, number five or something. There's a reason it's up there. Like, it's a pretty good film. <laughs> like, I would recommend it to anyone. Probably some of those other top ones are pretty good, too. Um, and I'm sure we will watch some of them yeah. at some point. Um, yes, yeah, so I think that's all we've got. So thank you for listening this week. As ever, if you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to leave us a rating or review on iTunes or whatever podcast service you use. That's how we find new listeners. You can also find us on overinvestedpodcast.com, at overinvestedpod on Twitter, and at overinvestedpodcast on Tumblr. Bye.